Well, today historically is known as Rejoice Sunday or Rose Sunday. You'll notice the stoles that Father Joshua and I have on are rose made by our own Carol, who unfortunately is sick this morning. We are more than halfway done with Advent, with this season of preparation and waiting and patience. And our celebration of Christmas, that first coming of the Lord, is almost here. And while we don't know the time nor the hour of the second coming of Christ, we do know that we are closer to it than we were yesterday. The Lord is at hand. Rejoice. This week I've been reflecting on the strangeness of urgency in the season of Advent. Overall, it's characterized by joy, but at the same time, there's a bit of awe, I find, in myself in preparing for the Lord. I, I think that that first hymn that we opened the service with, Rejoice, Rejoice, Believers, is one of my favorite hymns. But it's not a happy, clappy kind of hymn, is it? There's rejoicing there, but there's also this idea that the second coming of the Lord is daunting, right? That when he comes to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end, we'll rejoice and have no reason to be afraid as Christians, and yet it's still a spectacular thing. A spectacular thing. And so you have that tension going on in that hymn, which very much captures Advent. For God calls us, dear friends, to anticipate the coming fullness of the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. He calls us to anticipate the coming fullness of the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is already here. You know that, right? We know that from Scripture, that the kingdom of God is here. The beachhead has been won. In fact, the victory has been won by Christ when he came that first time. And yet we're anticipating the fullness of it, everything that it means in our hearts, in our families, in our society, in the world at large, right? Sometimes scholars and theologians will call this the already but the not yet. The kingdom is here, but it still has yet to play out till the king returns. And so we are to anticipate that. But notice the scriptures today also tell us we aren't merely to anticipate it. We're not just passively waiting but we're to participate in the kingdom of God. We're to participate in the kingdom of God. We're not spectators. Being a Christian is not a spectator sport. The liturgy is not a spectator sport. We are part of that kingdom already. So succinctly put, as the scriptures teach, unless, and there's a connection here, unless we anticipate the coming of the fullness of the kingdom of Christ, we can't participate in it. There's a causality there. Anticipation brings about the ability to participate. And of course, there's this, this back and forth too, right? Because as you participate, it strengthens your anticipation of the kingdom of God. And that's the main theme today. Anticipate to participate and participate to anticipate the kingdom of God. We see this in other things in life, right? This isn't just some spiritual weird thing. Think about it for a minute. If you're in school, the inevitability of exams, 
especially this time of the year, right? I was talking to a student yesterday, or the term paper that's coming up, or whatever end of the year evaluations coming up motivates you to participate in your studies, motivates you to participate in, in preparing for that exam. And if you're working on a project at work, for example, you keep working not just because you love work so much, but because you're anticipating the completion of some task or some project, right? We need that as human beings. It's how God created us. And so it's the same spiritually, that we have heard a lot about anticipating so far in the season of Advent, and today we're going to look at participating a little bit closer. It's easy to look around in our world and lose hope. It's easy to look around in our world and lose hope. The effects of sin and death in this life bring about doubts and questions to some. And I will confess, even once in a while, I verge on that, going from lament to wondering, Lord, why are you allowing this to go on? Why do you allow this to be? There's nothing wrong with that, by the way, as a Christian. That's not a sign of weak faith. That's a sign of growing faith. When I read the texts today, or when I read, rather, in the newspaper, as I did this week, about a seven-year-old girl abducted by her, in her driveway by a FedEx man and later found dead, I can't help but ask those questions. The lament, to cry out to the Lord, Lord, come, because we are just so evil. The world is so dark. And then there's things even closer to you that might tempt you to despair or despondency. There's a great deal of talk now, which is good, about mental illness, about mental illness being on the rise in this country. But friends, unless we address things underneath mental illness, that talk is superfluous, frankly. Because it's the things underneath mental illness, the illness of the soul, that actually affects mental illness, right? Like, think about it for a minute. Our psychological community, those professionals, try to teach us to be adjusted, well-adjusted to a normalcy, right? But if the soul is sick, what normalcy can be had? If the soul is twisted, if there's no idea of what's good or why someone should love me or why I'm lovable or why should someone care about me, why should I care about them, why should I be a functional member of society, what's the purpose of life, what is happiness, if that's not there in the soul, you can do all sorts of things mentally and it won't matter. You'll be a depressed, despondent, despairing person. A parishioner sent me a study this week, which was really interesting. It's um, by economists of all people. Maybe you've run across it. The economists cited are Tyler Giles, Daniel Hungerman, and Tamar Ustrom. And the, the article was entitled, The Opiates of the Masses, Deaths of Despair, and the Decline of American Religion. Did anybody see that? I know one of you did. Two of you have. 
opiates of the masses, the deaths of despair and the decline of American religion. In that study, it finds that the causes, the cause of the dramatic increase in so-called deaths of despair, such as suicides, death by opiates, addiction, overdose, and alcoholism, is quite simply the decline of organized religion. It's an interesting correlation. Now, we all know that statistically and logically, correlation doesn't necessarily equal causation, right? But it's interesting that the study goes on to say one of the most important economic and demographic issues of our time, which they found, is that very little is provided for the explanation of the rise in despair, with one glaring exception, a decline in religious practice is highly correlative since the late 1990s, following a steep downturn in religious adherence, presumably with the collapse of mainline Protestantism in the United States in the 1980s. And so you can chart this and look, and I believe some of the statistics show that suicide's up something like 30%, but you can chart the rise of mental illness on one curve and the decline of religious adherence on another curve. Of course, we know that as Christians. This is not a surprise. In, data, in these data correlations, people are hearing less about the kingdom of God because the church is falling apart. And so society is not being upheld by the good news of the gospel. And the less people that hear the good news of the gospel, the less people hear the fact that God loves them that God has a purpose for them, that they are lovable, that they're cared for. And so they turn astray and try to find happiness in, in things like drugs. And finally, some out of despair end up killing themselves. So you see, friends, the real point is a soul sickness in our society. Because outside of Christ... Outside of God's dignity, why should we not use one another? Why should we be kind to one another? Why should we love one another? There's frankly no reason if you're going by the laws purely of nature. But there's all the reason if you're going by the laws of God. So the church has the answer to this soul-sick question that our world and our society here in America particularly strives for. The church has the answer because God has given us the answer about morality and love. And that morality and love and caring for one another are not grounded in this world, but in another kingdom. Only God gives humans life itself, and only God gives human life meaning. And only God gives human life purpose to know God and to enjoy him forever. To be in relationship with him in his kingdom, whether at a distance in the news or within our own families perhaps, the troubling things that I've mentioned 
have an antidote. And that's relationship with God. So in such times, and in all times, in fact, for all of us, it's important to hear God's promise of coming, spoken through the prophet. I invite you to look with me at Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 and 4. Our first reading today, a little bit down from the beginning of it. The prophet writes, Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Period. He will come and save you. And then look with me finally at verse 10 of that same chapter at the bottom of the page. And the ransom to the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is not to say, dear friends, when we read this, that the pain and the loss of our world goes away. Don't hear that. God's message to the weary and dark world is not who cares about the world. But it's rather the sufferings are temporary. The evils and the wickedness will be judged. And there's a better kingdom, which is already here and is coming to its consummation with the return of Jesus. For those who are victims of injustice, there is a judge above the judicial system. For those who suffer under unrighteous laws, there is a greater law and a greater lawgiver above them. For those who misuse their power, magistrates, mayors, police officers, even fathers, mothers, and bishops and priests, there is someone who will judge them. Recompense will come. God promises the wicked will receive their just desserts at his hand, if not in the hands of this world. And so the temporary nature and the effects of evil and sin is comforting for those who suffer. It's comforting for those who suffer. That We have this strange, weird idea in Christianity that we can't take solace in that. It's unbiblical. Take solace in that. That the Lord will come to judge and things will be made right. But also, be sobered by it. Lest you be wicked. Lest you be evil lest you be oppressive in your life. Have you ever thought of that as the gospel? It is. It's just as much the gospel as Jesus coming and dying on the cross for you, that he will come one day to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. It's good news. It's the good news that God loves you, and that God loves those outside the walls of the church. He will come to save you. You can bet on it. And so turmoil, heartache, the loss, all that a Christian experiences in this world, all that you and I experience, doesn't go unseen or uncared for. Simply put, when we look around and we feel down and we lament this world, so does the Lord. And if you ask yourself, as I do once in a while, 
How do people do it without Christ and his kingdom? The answer is, they don't. They don't. Which we see in those demographics cited earlier. Why is it so urgent that we proclaim God's kingdom? Because we're to love as God loved us. And at the same time, friends, when I look at myself, and I bet you look at yourself too, I think sometimes we've forgotten the incredible good news of the gospel. You see, there's a certainty in our anticipation in Jesus that fuels our life, that gives us reason for living and going on. There's a certainty that he's at hand. And this certainty is what Christians peg everything on, every part of our lives upon. What both the, the prophet Isaiah and the apostle James are writing to God's people about here is patience, a strong endurance, and integrity, all coming from a certainty of joy in God's kingdom. And there's always room for each one of us in growth in that. Now I invite you to look with me at the James passage, James chapter 5 in your Bibles, verse 7, or in your scripture inserts, and look at the beginning of the passage. Be patient, says the apostle, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The farmer doesn't wonder whether the seed that he's planted is going to come up after the late rains. He knows it will. He has a certainty that that seed will bear fruit, and his life and livelihood is built around it. Remember, in James' time, even in, in most recent times here in the United States, there was no safety net for the farmer. The farmer depended entirely upon the rains and the weather. And so the certainty that James is talking about would be very well driven home to the first readers of this text. That the farmer puts everything on the fact that that crop will happen. The Apostle James says here, establish your hearts, and why? For the coming of the Lord is at hand. You can bank on it. You can be certain upon that, that the coming of the Lord is at hand. He continues in that very same vein. He says, as far as the practical things in Christian life, what is it that helps motivate our participation in the kingdom? The certainty of our anticipation. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble. Why? According to James... The Lord will judge you. The certainty of the Lord is at hand. Be steadfast and patient in verse 11. Why? The Lord is compassionate and merciful. The Lord is at hand. Let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. In other words, live a life as a Christian of integrity. Why? So that you do not fall under condemnation. The Lord is at hand. You see, these practical ways of being a Christian are participating in the kingdom, are motivated by the coming of the Lord being at hand. That his kingdom will come in its fullness. That he's at the door. 
So not grumbling, enduring, speaking with integrity. These are things that please God, yes. But they're also things that build up God's church. And they give good witness outside to the community. Because they're different. They're contrasting with the darkness of this world. The apostle goes on in verse 13a, pray in the midst of suffering. In verse 13b, praise in the midst of cheer. Verse 14 and 15, anoint, be anointed by elders and prayed for in the midst of the body in troubles with your body and your soul. Each of these points could be preached on independently, right? We could say a lot about prayer. We could say a lot about anointing. We could say a lot about praying during suffering or praising during cheer. But what holds them all together? The certainty that the Lord is at hand. That the Lord is not indifferent. He's not blind to what you're going through. That He will intervene in your life and has friends, and one day will bring the ultimate intervention into the life of the world. And so oftentimes I think that we as Christians are blind to the closeness of God's being at hand, because for us it seems to be so long, right? It seems like it's been so long since Jesus ascended and, sit, and sat at the right hand of the Father, is sitting at the right hand of the Father. But it hasn't been that long. It just seems long to us. And his existence isn't diminished in any way. His, at hand, he, his being at hand is nearer than it was yesterday. So earlier in this, this epistle, the apostle writes that you have not because you ask not, which is an outgrowth of not seeing him at hand and his return is imminent. But the apostle today begins this passage with a farming illustration and ends it, interestingly, with another farming illustration. Did you notice that? Look at verse 16b through 18. Therefore, says St. James, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. I didn't put this together till today. That you've got this sandwich of farmer illustrations, one at the beginning and one at the end. But notice, the first is dependent on God for the natural things, right? For his established order. The second is dependent upon God for his intervention in the natural things, for his upsetting of the natural order, because he is the king of all of that. So dear friends, don't forget how much the knowledge and reality of the kingdom affects your life. And don't forget that anticipating brings participating and helps us be fueled in our growth and our knowledge and love for God and for, for one another. God's intervention, just like his intervention in the Old Testament to Elijah, has changed our trajectory of life. 
It's changed the way we think about things. It's changed the way we approach problems. It's changed how we deal with sadness. And if it hasn't changed those things in your life, it is changing those things in your life, whether you see it or not. Don't lose track of that. And don't lose track that your neighbors who don't know Jesus don't have that. That's part of why we have to be so urgent in spreading the good news of the gospel. Because everybody needs to hear this good news. That God has made a way. So during Advent, we focus on the fact that humans cannot live happily without the knowledge of God and his kingdom for the purpose of their life. We believe that as Christians. There's only one way. There's only one purpose for every human being. And that is to love God and enjoy him forever. Number two, once God has made us a part of that kingdom, we can't participate in that kingdom well without grumbling and praising and praying and living in integrity without a constant mindfulness of his being at hand, of Jesus being at the door. Number three, in participating with the kingdom, we proclaim an alternative lifestyle. That's one of those phrases that gets thrown a lot around today, right? Being a Christian is an alternative lifestyle. It's an alternative mindset, a mindset of hope instead of despair. A mindset of there is something greater than me. There is a reason that I'm lovable. There's a reason that I should be cared for. There's a reason I should care for others. There's a reason that I should love others. There's a reason for all of this that's going on. And Jesus is at the center of it. Sometimes it's mysterious, but he is. And so in participating in that kingdom, we are proclaiming alternatives to the world. The good news of the kingdom of Christ and his coming again, which is closer than it was. As Christmas approaches in closing, preach these three points to yourself. Start by preaching these three points to yourself to your own heart. Secondly, help a struggling neighbor or friend. You don't have to take someone through the entirety of the gospel presentation to bring hope. Those little door hangers that I produced, I didn't produce them, that I ordered. I don't have one in here. But you have them in your bulletins. They say, peace be to this house. Peace be to this house. Bring that peace and light in the midst of darkness and despair. Preach that to your friends. And then tell them about Jesus as God gives opportunity. Tell them for the reason that you have hope. His coming is at hand. Take comfort in anticipating that and don't take it for granted. Christ came, friends. Fact. Christ will come again. Fact. His kingdom will have no end. Fact. Hang your hat on it. Put your soul into it. It is the cure for the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen.